What's going on, nerds? Before we get to this episode of Nerds on History, I want to take a second to talk to you guys about our other podcast, Nerds on Film. Every week, Brian, Sarah, Kevin, and myself talk about movies, we make some jokes, and we say a lot of bad words. And if you're a fan of bad words, you're going to want to go listen to that podcast after you're done listening to this one, because Nerds on History won't let us say f***, c***, mother huge and tiny little or Enjoy. You know, Eric... I gotta say, I was really excited after we had Maureen on last week. It was a big achievement for us. Absolutely. And you know, and I didn't want to stop there. So I found an amazing guest. Maureen had one PhD. This guy's got like four PhDs. quadruple PhD. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's on loan right now. Like, she literally introduced him here. Come on in, sir. Eric, this is uh, Basil Fitzbasil. Please, sir. Sir Basil, please. Oh, my apologies. That's all right. You may call me Sir B if you like. Okay, Sir B. Very good. How do you do? Oh, it's a pleasure. It's Absolute a pleasure. pleasure being in the States once again. As you know, I'm currently on loan from the British Museum of Antiquities uh, and Ancient Objects, for those who are not familiar with that sort of thing, uh, to Stanford, Stanford University. Uh, well, I'm currently housed in a rather drafty Winnebago next to the Linear Accelerator. Oh, well, oh. that sounds exci- uh, exciting. <laughs> it isn't. Uh, however, um, it, it's perfect for me as I do require lots of quiet. Um, it, it's, it's just thank you so much for letting me be here. Oh, no problem. No problem. And well, we're, we're really excited because tonight we're going to be talking about uh, the Seven Wonders of the ancient world and we actually we think we they're they're due for revision and we've heard that you've done oh, some research on this topic yes yes i have yes i have and and, and I, might i say I'm, I'm thrilled that you are all so interested in in the the ancient aspect of of wonders if i may i i did bring a list of my my favorite however not seven it's actually only five but i do find them very exciting and thrilling and most people probably unaware of their their existence at all all right well i mean um, okay. five is a uh, sacred number yeah so that's, we, that can, works, we can certainly but, yeah. uh, you, you do not mind no no, no not at all no, I'll let, let me dive right in then uh, well, um the first is yeah. is of course uh, it's it's from the etruscan <laughs> period uh, uh and it was known as the uh, translated to the uh, floating island of liquinarium Oh, fascinating it was discovered by a random sponge diver named Jawapa rutelli Fascinating. It was dying for a sponge and rather came up with a with an ancient fragment of tablet. When it was um, deciphered back uh, uh, and uh, it was from the uh, code of Capri, the dimensions were discovered of the barge. The barge was actually larger than three flight decks of a modern aircraft carrier. Ah, that's astonishing! Incredible. Yeah. Yes, totally. Um, of course, it was known then. And the modern equivalent would be the the booze cruise. Uh, it was created by the ancient architect Scrotus Elongatus, and it birthed the uh, port of Hysterium ad nauseum. Fascinating. I, I imagine uh, that it is absolutely yeah. fascinating. Um, now, indeed, uh, indeed. Really Basil, we should just, maybe though. Uh, yeah, you know, there, there's a couple more if I do have time. Of course. Well, well have we all heard of the, the 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 Minotaur of Minoa and the Minoan society and civilization? Little known fact, however, that there was a temple of a Meldum on the ancient island of Crete, right outside of present-day Heraklion. Oh, it was a cult dedicated to the worship of the Minoan goddess Emeldum. Each pilgrim, prior to entry uh, to the sacred temple, had to remove their ceremonial sandals, purchased just outside, and then they were thrown into the labyrinth of lost souls. Spectacular. Now, both Herodotus and uh, Pliny the Abused estimate that the total number of footwear was to exceed 100,000 pairs. Astonishing. 
Oh, the, the length of the labyrinth and the site is still in existence. However, nothing remains but an enormous system of empty tunnels and a worn bronze dedication plaque left by a field rep from Dr. Show. Pity. Uh, yeah, I yeah. didn't know they go back that far. Or they don't. The date on was 1926. Oh. Uh, okay. I didn't even know that far. Indeed. Um, well, I might have been the doctor himself. Yeah. He did like to get around. Ah, uh, would you like to hear more? There's another one, as you know, that, that is that is called the the, the Tukmagian Bowl of well, L. Uh, oh, uh, actually, it's, it's a it's a natural flaming caldera in the heart of what is now the the red light district of modern Armenia. It exceeded the dimensions of three Roman colosseums. The ancient god of fire and gas, Garlicius, uh, for the better part of a century, virgins were sacrificed to his honor twice weekly. Oh, that's... Oh, horrible. Uh, these ceased, of course, when they ran out of virgins, immediately followed by an astronomical population boom. Hmm. It's uncanny. Yeah, uh, uh, remarkable. Yeah. Uh, you can still see remnants of that, but I wouldn't recommend it. Ghastly country. And then, of course, we'd have northern Europe. Can't leave them out, shall we? is the Uberschwarzwald, which is now the, the ancient remnants of the blackest forest cited in the Germanic tribe tales of what is now lesser and lower Bavaria. Astonishing. Huh. It was said that the Germanic tribe tales of the ancient runes told of the forest it was so dark and that, that no one ever actually saw it, as its enormity blocked out all natural sunlight. You believe that? Not really, no. Well, try. Uh, one could only feel it, which the ancient storytellers say took years. The sagas tell of only three warriors who ever completed the journey while feeling the forest. The Meissen brothers. Perhaps you've heard of them. They all went blind due to the lack of light. Only a small portion remains today of the blackest forest in existence. It's just outside of the small hamlet of Hosenflappen which is the capital of Lederhosen in the lesser regions of, I said, uh, Bavaria, but uh, I digress. There's one more if you're interested. Uh, well, uh, it has it's, 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 uh, uh, healing properties. It's known as the bubbling mud domes of Jai Jun John. It's located on an island five miles off the coast of modern North Korea. It was stated by the ancient scholar Katsuya. Who, who also founded the modern tenets of, of litigation, uh, that the volume of burning mud domes exceeded the number of concubines in the Emperor Tuhong Seraglio. Amazing! The curative powers of the rare mud were said to be huh. nothing short of miraculous. Sadly, however, the cures were, were short-lived uh, due to the high toxicity levels of sulfur. The euphoria of cured scrofula lasted a mere six minutes. Modern science has since, however, implemented a fermentation system and filtration that maintains the curative properties of the mud while replacing the toxic effects with overwhelming feelings of complete submission to totalitarian regimes. That Baffling. Seems rather unbelievable. Um, Sir Basil. Yes, yes, please. Sir B. I, I really want to know, where did you get your PhDs from? Well, as you know, what PhD stands for is paid higher dollars, and that's precisely what I did. Uh, certainly off the coast of Brittany, there's a small, actually, it's a, it's a recovered oil derrick uh, known as Devry. It's, it's uh, peopled and populated and uh, uh, calculated uh, uh, to be the only site completely inhabited by failed culinary students from Paris. However, they do offer a, a course in antiquities and ancient bombs and salves. Ah. Wow. Marvelous. Indeed. I guess, as I understand you said earlier, Eric, that I, I do have four 
for PhDs. We like to refer to that in the inner circles as I have doctors squared. Ah, little, I, little academic humor. Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's all we have time for. I think it's really all we have time well, for. Well, I thank you for for the for the wonderful time I I have taken of yours. It's, it's quite a gift. Um, I'm not not really sure how you do this in the states, but I've had a marvelous time. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, thank you, Doctor Basil, and we hope you um can find your your way out. If I found these, I can find that. Wow, I am so sorry. Where did you find I him? I saw the ad on Craigslist. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm Eric Brickmont. Well, sir, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, you were good. not feeling too well a couple days ago. I was awful. <laughs> <laughs> I, had a, I had a stomach flu, and it has finally passed through me, quite literally. And I am very, very happy to see it go. Uh, this is probably the first day that I woke up and I didn't feel like death. Which is good. That's always a good thing, yeah. It's a good thing. It is a good thing. <clears throat> well, um, we're excited because we do have another guest tonight. Um, it's not Sir Basil Fitzbasil. Um, You're never allowed, ever, to book our guests again. I'm, never. Know, that's why I gave it to Dave. That's what I'm just going to say. I gave the job to Dave for a reason. <laughs> um, clearly, because you can tell, I found someone who's crazy so um what we do have instead is uh, a guy who i've known my entire life self-proclaimed history buff and also the reason why i got into acting greg mortensen thank you thank you for uh allowing me the airtime and space yes i am a self-described history uh fanatic as uh my lack of wall space for hanging anything else other than books will attest. Gosh, I think for as long as I've known you, and if I didn't already say you're my uncle at this point, I, I, I should have probably said that earlier. Had to go public with that, didn't you? All right. Yeah. Uh, sorry, yeah. I have a question. At what point was he not your uncle? Go ahead. Jesus Christ. Okay, so... Cue the crickets. <laughs> so, I'm just wondering, was history like your favorite subject when you were when you were back in school, or was it something you kind of came into when you were an adult? Uh, no, no, it was... Uh, Define adult before we continue. Uh, actually, no. It was uh, back in uh, when I was in, in parochial school, or or some people interpret uh, Dante's Ninth Circle of Hell. Um, it was uh, I had a fasting teacher, a nun, uh, Sister Mary Joseph, who exposed us to the whole uh, archaeology thing with Carter and the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb and all that. And I was just bit by the bug in the third grade, and it's been that way since. So it's uh, at one time I fancied myself a, a budding archaeologist, and then uh, switched into theater. There you go. Hmm. That's really interesting. I see. I never. You never told that to me before. So that's, I've uh, never been asked. <laughs> <laughs> we actually. Well, we went to the same parochial school. Just I went there decades later. Um, yes, I was there when the earth was still cooling. <laughs> <laughs> Can I share the famous story of the of the day you got the medal? Oh, the Adaltari Day Medal. Oh, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> so, Let's go public. I, just to just to show you how how religious my uncle uh, is. So he, you got the award for being most religious on your eighth grade graduation. No, no, this was uh, seventh. Seventh, oh, seventh grade. grade. Yeah, sorry, seventh, seventh grade. grade. It was uh, for the most uh, consecutive masses served as an altar boy, and uh, the the honor was to go uh, and serve uh, a mass with the archbishop. That was the reward and a, and a medal. <laughs> What makes this even more funny is the day of him getting the award, uh, he had been caught running a gambling ring in the boys' bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like hot milk money. <laughs> yeah, I was completely busted along with Joe Tamillo and Dave Petrucci, whose names both end in a vowel. You take it from there. 
All right. Well, you're uh, already going to get an award for the funniest uh, guest that we've ever had on the show. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I, I mean, let's talk a little bit about your vast theater background because I mean, you you went to Juilliard. Yes, I did. I, I mean, survived. Survived to tell the tale. The graduate group ten. And for those who don't know, that was the Juilliard's program goes back. I mean. Uh, over a century, but their drama program is only about 50, 60 years old. It's roughly, yeah. Uh, the first graduating class, Group 1, uh, some of you may know uh, Patti LuPone or Kevin Kline, uh, David Ogden Stiers, Norman Snow, people like that. They were all uh, they were all Group 1, and every graduating class is known as a group. So, And that was 1970, that the first group. Okay. Uh, actually, 71, my mistake. 71 is when they got out. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, and then uh, I was uh, group ten, um, and now I think they're up to group forty. Blah blah blah. So it's, it's yeah, it's coming along. Definitely, wow. it's grown. Yeah, quite a bit. And you've got you've worked with some amazing people too. You've worked in both stage and and film. Um, sure, film, television, theater. Uh, it's all different, but it's all good. Had a blast doing it. I, I can honestly say I've only really wanted to uh, commit suicide in the middle of a production once, uh, and survive that. I'm still here. But, Did you work it into the show? You know, uh, the dressing room, certainly. Oh, okay. Very good. <laughs> and then we just decided to take it out on the director. So all, all's well that ends well. Yeah, the stage manager just kept wondering why he kept ordering rope right. <laughs> into, the, into the dressing room. Right. There's a UPS man here with TNT. <laughs> Greg, would, can we get you anything? Give me a bottle of vodka and, and a two bottles fuse, of aspirin. please. Very short fuse. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, let's get into our, some listener feedback, shall we? Let us. This week in listener feedback. Our first piece comes from Isabel, and Isabel probably has one of the nicest things I think I've ever read on air. <laughs> yeah, it was really sweet. I'd say it's, it's, to be completely honest, the reason why I sit down at this mic every single week. And I'm going to read it to you all now. Hello all, I just recently discovered your podcast while searching for history things on iTunes, and I absolutely love it. I am a high school student, and though I have long loved history, my school hardly supports any real learning towards the subject. Uh, learning more in favor of memorization of dates and such for the sake of a test. Academic bulimia, if you will, as the system is set up with such that we simply regurgitate information for a test and never go any further with it. Your podcast, in contrast, has absolutely fueled my passion for the subject. Eric and Brian, I cannot thank you guys enough for inspiring me to keep up my love of the subject through independent research. I have you to thank partially for keeping me motivated to achieve my dream of teaching history when I am older. Thank you so much. Also, I would personally love to hear your take on the historical accuracy or lack thereof of classic Disney movies that are based on history like Pocahontas and Mulan, as well as legends and mythology such as Hercules. Once again, thank you so much for all the work you do to provide information and entertainment to your listeners. I hope to see your podcast continue far into the future. I love you guys. No homo habilis. Sorry, that was really bad. I have no regrets. Wow. Yeah. We've always, we've talked about, we never expected to inspire people. We just wanted to do it because we thought it would be fun. And um, it does definitely recharge the batteries as to why we do this, you know. Does it ever concern you guys that um, perhaps that comes with a double-edged sword of you don't want to disappoint then either? Because there's an expectation bar that's been uh, raised. Yeah, I've just just started drinking profusely. That's what makes me... uh, I've developed a nervous tick. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to say anything. Yeah, this is why uh, I've got a punch bowl of scotch. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> On the table. Did that disturb you gentlemen at all that she said it's not taught? 
at her school? Uh, uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, history, just, just graduating high school almost 10 years ago now, just remembering what that was like. History was exactly that. It wasn't being taught. It was being memorized. And it was being done so for the state, for, for the sake, I should say, of state testing, so that the school could get the money it needed to continue on. And it wasn't so much that you were impacting and making a lesson plan, you were creating something that was easy for your students to memorize so that they could pass the test so that they could move on. And it's sad. It's very, very yeah. sad. And we could go on. We actually did do a whole episode on, on the, the, on the history of education. Of, of education yeah. yeah. And standardized testing is really messing up the progress because you're getting, you're getting kids now who are getting better at taking tests, right. and, not and at being better people. They're not learning. Yeah. Exactly. Because dates are there to put a context. Right. The context is used for teaching and learning from the experiences of those events in history. Right. And understanding them so that you don't repeat the bad stuff and you further the good stuff. And that's all being lost. Can I throw in something, if, if it's possible, uh, and, and not to sound like a little self-promoting here, but uh, I was approached by a colleague, uh, and, and my, my nephew did not mention I'm currently a college professor as well. It's a perfect day job. Uh, but I've been asked to team teach a um, political science class that has to do with history and the media. What's rather interesting is is I'm I'm approaching a subject that we all find near and dear, which is film, television, entertainment, and how certain historical uh, incidences, uh, events, if you will, uh, have been shown on the big screen, small screen, and and a lot of people leave thinking, wow, that's what happened, mm. and it's uh, a little alarming when. These facts are not facts. They're a truth, and a truth is subjective. Right. And that's the point that I'm going to attack the class, is that what's your truth, and then what's the fact? So, right, yeah. Something to think about. Absolutely, yeah, totally. And we've talked about that uh, a couple times. Like, we, sp we devoted an entire episode to historical inaccuracies of, of movies. And it's a fun subject to kind of get into, because I think it's a problem that happens with theater and film in general, is that it's a, the audience assumes it's reality, and it can't be reality. It has to be, even if they know the characters are fictitious, or because they may have once existed, you assume that everything is truth, and ultimately you're, you're watching a story, right? And that's what's more important. It's the theme of the story, not necessarily the content of the story, plot point by plot point. Right. Absolutely, and, and perhaps you gentlemen uh, are aware of this one film, The, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, has one of the best cinematic lines ever written. And uh, it's if you haven't seen the film, it's, it's a fantastic, great classic Western, John Wayne, James Stewart, Lee Marvin, etc. And uh, John Ford directed, so um, speaking of racists. Anyway, uh, it does have to do with... Uh, an incident that is so blown out of proportion that the modern press at the time, because it's told in flashbacks, says, well, when the legend becomes the truth, print the legend. And that's what people believe. Yeah. And it's frightening. Oh, totally. Know? I mean, it, and there's tons of examples of that happening that we've kind of, we've built a collective legend uh, about a lot of perceptions in history. And a lot of it is just that. It's a legend that we've come to accept because it's easier to remember. And, you know, we've got a lot of work to do if we're going to be a society that really supports education for remedying that. We do have one more piece of feedback. Uh, this is from Chris. Subject is Roman corrections. Not talking about prisons in ancient Rome, but rather <laughs> a correction on our on a Rome episode. Uh, hey guys, love, love the podcast. I just started listening about a week ago, and I'm on the episode entitled Et Tu Goofy. I listen to the podcast every day at work for eight hours a day, and so far you haven't bored me one little bit. I do have to throw out a few corrections at you, as per your request. On your first episode on the Pope, the history of the papacy, 
Uh, I think I think that was Pope Spock the first is what we called yes. that episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was surprised you didn't bring up the history all the way back to Rome. There has been a religious post in Rome called the Pontifex Maximus since the early days of Rome. Even Julius Caesar was in this post at some time, as is the post that Christian Rome co-opted with into the papacy. Also, to that note, uh, Constantine did not make Christianity the official religion of Rome. Theodosius did a number of years later. Uh, in the current episode on Rome, uh, Eric called... Uh, English a romance language, but it certainly isn't. English is a Germanic language, and I think we've corrected ourselves on that later on, that got most of its Latin words from the Norman invasion of the 1066 Hastings. Seriously, 20 plus episodes, and these are the only slips I've noticed. You guys kick ass. At this rate, I should be caught up in a month. He uh, emails us about five minutes later to say, subject, I'm a moron. Hey guys, literally right after I wrote my previous message, I started listening again, and you both mentioned the role of the Pontifex Maximus. My sincere apologies, you guys rock. Stay awesome. And uh, Chris, we welcome the feedback, but you do have some listening to do because we've actually addressed all those in later episodes. Yeah, we, if you get up to the platypus of languages, our, our episode on the English language, we do uh, make that correction and, and elaborate on yeah. so much more. And I do think we mentioned Theodosius at some point. I could have, got, when we did the Rome episode uh, with, uh, with our buddy Dan, who came over. Uh, I could be wrong. And if that's the case, we'll thank you for the, for the info. Which is not to be confused with Theodoric of York, the first medieval a microscientist who perfected the use of Bohr's vomit as a poultice. <laughs> that's what? true. That, that, that's, that's very true. And by true, I mean that's completely false. I'm going to pretend like I understood what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a certain academic mind to uh, wrap one's head around that, uh, which thankfully, I'm pretty sure Greg is the only one that, that exists. You're welcome. <laughs> so, uh, well, should we actually, I don't know, talk about our topic? Yeah, we should probably get we to the probably topic, probably shouldn't should. we? We're about a half hour in. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least in raw time code. Sean will probably edit this down. So we originally were talking about this week, we really wanted to touch on uh, the seven wonders of the world. Right. This and is something that's been suggested to us several times in several different and listener And we've feedbacks. been trying to find an angle on it for, for literally about at least six months now. Because yeah. whenever we, we kept revisiting it, we're like, well... It's been done. How often can you talk about the seven wonders and not be repeating yourself? And I think what we decided to do is really, like, we'll comment on the original seven wonders of the world, but we really feel like, well, when you call something a group of of monuments the seven wonders of the ancient world, it should really reflect the entire world, and it doesn't. It reflects maybe the ancient world of Western civilization It should be the the seven wonders of the Mediterranean. Really, that's exactly what it what it should be. It just touches all the cultures along that area. Can I play student and just ask um, who was the designated, uh, let's say, chooser, for lack of a better word, of those wonders? Who did it? Well, I would be lying if I could say I know who it specifically named him, but I do know it was the British. It was the it was the British Empire that pretty much saddled it, and it's because these were they were named in the late nineteenth century, and this is a time where the British Empire you know, economically, culturally, and militarily dominated the, the world. The sun never set on the British Empire. Exactly, right, because they literally had colonies around the globe. So, of course, what they think is they're going to automatically think is the most important opinion in, in, in the world. Uh, well, and, Herodotus did put together an initial list of his ancient wonders. Right. And that is something that, that later scholars took as inspiration, and a lot of things that ended up on that list did end up in the seven wonders of, of the ancient world. But he had other pieces on there that were ignored and replaced and, yeah. and modified and switched out. And the, and you're absolutely right. The thing I want to emphasize is that 
what was going on in the British Empire in the late 19th century was a fascination with the ancient world and the ancient world that they were able to perceive. And the only ones they were able to perceive were those of the Greeks, which they had just been excavating, and what they had begun to uncover in Egypt as well. Because for those who don't remember, the British had a very big presence in the Middle East up until 1945. Really. Antiquities they stole from the French. Right, exactly. And the British actually are to blame for a lot of that because they've, I don't want to be pointing fingers, but the British Museum of Natural History has priceless artifacts from both Greece and Egypt that the Egyptians and the Greeks want back. Sure. And the British don't want to give back because of its significance of it being in a museum. Well, it's kind of ridiculous. Keep, keep in mind that many of these artifacts were, were plundered from these countries during the 18th and 19th century at a time when the British Empire ruled over much of the world, right. including the majority of these countries. And so there was no government, there was no organized voice, there were no protests against the removal of these pieces of their antiquity and history because there was no centralized government. It was all being controlled by the British. So now that the British Empire collapsed after the Second World War and you found the, the quick establishment of these countries, their populations have now been requesting for quite some time the return of many of these pieces, including, of course, the Rosetta Stone, which is probably the, the most famous argument between Britain and Egypt uh, for, oh gosh, they've been asking for it formally back, I think, since the 1970s. I mean, this has been going on for a really long time. Let's not forget also that the countries, uh, let's say, um, natives of both what is now Egypt and, and, and modern Greece were more than happy to sell and make a few dollars off these antiquities as well. It's a commerce rears its ugly head. And that uh, level of theft still goes on today. I mean, we can't forget that, that everything's for sale. Yeah. Just leave your morals at the door. Right. But I think that what we can gather from this is that we've moved beyond that perception of the civilized world being the Western world, and we've now seen it as a global contribution from all these different cultures and societies throughout time. And there have been modern attempts to rewrite the seven wonders of the ancient world. And I think that it, it bears just repeating what were the original, what are the new, and then we can go over what we think are our picks. Sounds good to me. Because um, none of ours are on any of these lists, which is what I, I love. Anyway, the seven classic wonders of the ancient world include the Great Pyramid of Giza, which is the only the, ones that are still standing. The only one that's still standing. That's correct. Uh, in this case, they're referring to the Pyramid of Khufu. So it's the largest of, of the three that are there at Giza. Uh, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which many scholars have now suggested may not have even existed. Uh, you have the uh, Statue of Zeus at Olympia, a massive, incredible construct, again, <laughs> gone. Uh, the Temple of Artemis, the Mausoleum at Halicarnassus, the Colossus of Rhodes, and, of course, the Lighthouse of Alexandria. And that's the that's the classic list. Yeah. And, you know, other individuals, other scholars have had the same idea that, that you know, we've had right and they've gone and they've recreated their version of the seven wonders to include other cultures from around the world sure. so the more updated list has the great wall of china has petra and jordan it's got uh, christ the redeemer in brazil machu picchu in peru uh, chichen itza in yucatan in mexico the Colosseum in italy the taj mahal in india and then they have a, the honorary mention of the great pyramid of giza right Yes, some of those are ancient. Christ the Redeemer has only been around for about 80 years or yeah, so. Yeah, but Machu Picchu was built in 1450. Right. So, so they're, they're not fully ancient. They're really just wonders of the, of the world is what they are. Yeah, and I think we're going to do something similar as well, right? Because not every civilization had access to all of the materials and tools necessary to have these really large building projects until a bit later on yeah. in their history. I, I do want to say real quick, 
that I made I want to make a small correction that even though Giza is the only wonder that is still standing, we do have a spiritual resemblance of the Colossus of Rhodes in the Statue of Liberty. Um, and I bring that up only not just because of the pointed hat, but um, but because the architect of the statue was trying to make a new Colossus. Right. Um, so, Bart, thank you, Bertold. I was going to say Eiffel, but Eiffel did the scaffolding. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Once again, the French. <laughs> yeah. uh, when Bertold was designing the statue, he wanted to make a modern Colossus of Rhodes, essentially. So just wanted to bring that up as well. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think that we're going to have to define these now because we're redefining even the, the concept of ancient, right? So yeah. this is going to be our seven picks of the ancient-ish world. Right. The seven wonders of the ancient-ish world. And I think we should just list very quickly which ones we're going to do, and then we'll jump into them individually. So we have the Pyramid of the Sun at uh, Teotihuacan in Mexico. Yes. We have the Terracotta Soldiers in China. We have the Temple of Karnak in Egypt and Luxor. Uh, we have the Acropolis in Greece. Chaco Canyon in North America, the only one on North America in that in that list there. Uh, the Great Stupa of Sanche in India. And then we're going to finish it off with the enormous temple complex of Angkor Wat uh, in Cambodia. Yeah, which we've covered five of them of the seven continents. So that's pretty awesome. I think we actually we may have even gotten all six because we can't count Antarctica. There's only penguins and ice. Uh, well, we didn't get Australia. We didn't get Australia, right. So five of the seven continents is ain't bad. That ain't bad at all. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'd actually like to start off the list, if that's okay. And I think normally we do it in chronological order. Uh, I'm going to suggest we actually abandon that. That's fine. Yeah, I'm going to say we go by geographic association to us. Okay. So what's closest to us right now, being Chaco that we are in America? Exactly, Chaco Canyon. This is something that I have a very close connection to, and that my father, being the archaeologist that he is, he has been studying the, the Native American peoples of America for his entire career. This is something that he has always been fascinated with, and he does his own local research in, in around our area here. Uh, and there are many, many different populations all around both North, Central, and South America, these, uh, these indigenous peoples, who had incredible knowledge of the heavens. They had a very sophisticated understanding of the rising and the setting of the sun, the moon, and the constellations uh, above them. So they, they knew what was really going on. And perhaps no more obvious than in Chaco Canyon, because the Chacoan people, uh, who are essentially Anasazi in in their later history, right? So the Anasazi, the ancient Puebla people, uh, these are their ancestors. These are, or sorry, I should say, those are their ancestors. These are their descendants. The Chacoan people inhabited an area of nearly ninety five thousand square miles, uh, mostly in New Mexico. And they had a, a very, very large area of influence, not just in terms of the, the total land that they occupied, but in terms of the scope of their, their trade that they had with other cultures and civilizations. Because they were trading with cultures all the way far south as, as the Aztecs and the Mayans. So we see two to 3,000 mile trade routes set up between this central part in the southern portion of, of the western United States and, uh, and central Mesoamerica pretty sophisticated in that sense already, right? They had a really incredible understanding of the world around them and the cultures around them. And they built these incredible roads, hundreds of miles of roads, connecting all of their various settlements and then uh, passages further south to accommodate their, their trade routes. Uh, so we're not dealing with a small, isolated, underdeveloped culture. We're dealing with a, a really 
advanced culture for the time. And the choice of Chaco Canyon as being a kind of spiritual center for them is kind of an unusual one when you think about just how desolate and extreme the environment is. Because it was pretty well off the map in terms of their usual uh, habitation areas, right? There was other places that had plenty of food, easier to grow food in, had access to forests, had all the stuff that they needed, water, everything else. And Chaco Canyon is not that. Chaco Canyon's out in the middle of the desert. It is uh, 115 degrees in the sun in the summer and below zero uh, at night in the winter. So it's an extreme environment. Yeah, typical desert weather. Very typical, but not something that you would house a very large population in, right? Not unlike the climate in Northern California right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I can also add, out of all the wonders you've mentioned, uh, that is the only one that's nature-made, if you will. That um, And it is isolated. I've been there twice and it, it's awe-inspiring just simply because it's there. And yet at the same time, it's also awe-inspiring enough to go away from it. Because it's just, you, you don't want to stay long. At least that's yeah. what I felt. <laughs> I, I felt like a stranger and felt like a, a, an alien, if you will. But it is awe-inspiring and, and it is very dramatic just as nature made it. It's remarkable. Well, and I, I think that the people themselves felt the same exact way, because for a long time they looked at the constructs that had been created here. There are many, many very large complexes throughout all of Chaco Canyon that are that are constructed. They are uh, huge, so people thought that you know thousands upon thousands of people could have once lived there. But the data just doesn't add up, because when you look at the refuse pits, which is what, I've said this a hundred times on the podcast before, this is what archaeologists do, we go through people's garbage, it's just that they've been dead for thousands of years and so nobody cares. But that's how you tell whether or not this area was inhabited on a regular basis by a large population or not, and there's just not that kind of garbage. If you look at the, the largest of all of the um, complexes that are built there in Chaco Canyon, uh, and that is the, uh, the Pueblo Bueno, the beautiful house, essentially, the good house. There is a very, very small amount of evidence of maybe no more than 400 people actually living at the site. And that's wow. on the extreme high side. There are some who suggest as, le as little as 60 people were living there on a permanent basis. For a truly enormous complex, somewhere in the range of six or 700 rooms just in that one of the great houses was what they're called these uh in this particular case the the pueblo buena and we're talking about uh thousands of you know rooms all around this entire area and just a tiny teeny little bit of the population was there at any one time that's really fascinating I'm, it makes me kind of wonder uh, it evokes a mystery really of well, why build that much space? Was there a an event that took place that made them need to expand outward? Was it out of respect for their previous generations who were there? Lots of these questions come up. And it's called famine. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no. Uh, you would think so. And this is one theory that was going around for a really long time. long time. What was Chaco Canyon? Why did they spend over 250 years, nearly 12 generations... Uh, an enormous amount of resources. Uh, I mean, some of these large buildings are four or five stories tall. They're enormous. At the, uh, I believe it's just at Pueblo Buena alone, the large kivas, the large ceremonial buildings oh they have gosh. there, 
they all had roofs that were constructed out of timbers, and they estimate about 20,000 of those timbers would have been needed just right. to cover that one area. Nearly 200,000 timbers would have been needed to cover all of the different buildings in that whole area. Yeah. And we're talking about transporting those from 50 or 60 miles away. So Without the benefit of the horse. Right, exactly. This would have been all hand-dragged. Why go through so much effort if no one's really going to live there? Well, it, it all comes back to spirituality and the importance of this site, and modern Native Americans in the in the Pueblo region who have a very deep belief that all of their universe, everything that makes them who they are as a people, arose from this area. This was a central point from them, that they literally rose out of the ground, and this is where they were born, and this is where a great migration happened for these people, who was then spread out across all of the Americas. Now, that's, of course, the religious and spiritual interpretation of it. You look at, you know, the anthropological aspect of it, it's a little bit different. But there's highly, uh, or I should say, there is still nonetheless a highly advanced people who are here and they're doing something. And this is our ancient astronomers. This is where astronomy comes into it. Right. I want you to imagine, if you will, uh, an enormous outcrop of rock. Okay, these are called buttes. And in this particular butte, in the Fajata butte, we find these petroglyphs, okay, so carvings in the stone. And one very, very important one is a, a spiral petroglyph that was uh, carved on a rock, and then three large slabs of limestone were intentionally placed in front of it. What is incredible is that on the equinoxes, so the midpoints of the year, right, so in, in fall and spring when the, the sun is in the middle of the sky, essentially, you find that uh, the sun goes through one of those cracks in those three limestone slats and intersects with a smaller spiral petroglyph that's just off to the side of the primary one. Cuts it right in the middle like a blade, like a dagger of light. Hmm. What happens with the large one occurs on the winter solstice, because in the particular way that this is carved and angled, right, you'll find that on the winter solstice, then you have two daggers of light. Again, remember, there's three of these slabs. Two daggers of light that bracket the largest of the spirals. And this occurs like clockwork. It is absolutely perfectly aligned. It is off by only a fraction of a degree. And this was done by folks who did not have the advent of modern surveying equipment. They were able to do this by meticulous examination and through not only watching the sun, but again, also watching the moon. Because at the same site, we also have a lunar alignment that happens. That's even more incredible, that takes even more time and dedication to figure out. Because the moon, in its rising and its settings, not unlike the sun, also goes through a cycle, but it goes through a 18-year cycle. So nine of those years, the moon, as it rises, does so a little bit north every single time until it reaches what it's called the northern maximum. And then it goes on a reverse, and it goes back the other way until it reaches its southern maximum. When this happens, the moon's shadow is casted across that larger spiral, and when it's at the minimum, it reaches right in the middle of that spiral, right smack dab in the middle. When it's at its maximum, that, that uh, same shadow is on the outside of that spiral. Wow. So you're thinking about it. It takes 18 years to just plan out the location of this one petroglyph. And they don't just do it once. They use it as the basis for the foundation of pretty much all but two buildings that are constructed there at Chaco Canyon. Every single building is aligned to the rising and the setting of the sun. It is incredible. And we're talking about buildings that are 15, 20 miles apart from one another, that don't have a direct line of sight with each other. Right. <laughs> uh, this was all done based on their observations. 
And in the case of Pueblo Benito, uh, I think I said Pueblo Bueno over earlier. I should have said Pueblo Benito. It is a massive complex where most of these rooms are just to support the fact that it's such a huge and big building. Right. They're right. not actually meant for, for people to live in, like I said. Uh, just the building itself and its architecture and these massive walls that are constructed in a northern-southern alignment and then an eastern-western alignment, they mirror that exact same process that that little spiral petroglyph goes through. So all these rituals that were being performed there in these massive kivas, huge kivas, yeah, all related to the rising and the setting of the sun and the moon on those alignments. They went to the extreme of building a road, an incredibly accurate road, it veers off to some degree, okay, but it does stay pretty true to the north-south south alignment for 35 miles. And this alignment eventually ends at the, the bottom of a gorge where they carved in a, a limestone steps, which you would walk down and then have a ceremony in which you would, you would break pots on the ground. Uh, a very traditional kind of um, spiritual act that is performed in many Native American cultures. But all of this is done in, in perfect alignment. And it's absolutely awe-inspiring. Yeah. Uh, it's something that, as you can tell, huh, I feel very strongly about because yeah. there's this perception that because a culture doesn't have a written language, they don't know anything. Uh, there was a perception among the Western world that Native Americans had very little in way of culture, right? Sure, they made pottery well, was, and, and yeah. weaving, but they didn't have anything else. And that's such a lie. It's I mean, so inaccurate. It's for, It was a long time it was the defining element of whether a culture was civilized or not, was whether they had a written language. In fact, that's what I was taught when I took my civics class at, at San Jose State. It yeah. was that was what defined a civilized culture. And you're right. I mean, it doesn't in any way show the advancements of the knowledge of that of those people. And the last thing I'll say on it is that um, eventually they decided to abandon this site. And we're not exactly sure why. Maybe it just got too expensive to maintain because they had to bring food from the outside. It could have been because of political collapse uh, throughout their entire culture. We don't we don't really know. But when they decided to leave, they didn't just abandon it. They bricked up and walled up just about everything. They preserved the entire site. And while it's certainly fallen apart in some way or another, it is still beautifully preserved. And you can travel there now as part of the Chaco Canyon National Park System. You can go and you can tour and you can see these amazing places. And I encourage people who live in the New Mexico area who haven't done this, I don't care if you have to drive five or six hours, go do it because it's important, it's significant. Sure. Uh, if you're going through the area, make that important stop. Uh, this is something that if you want to learn a little bit more about, there was a really great independent documentary that was done a few years back with Robert Redford as the uh, narrator. Uh, it's called The Mysteries of Chaco Canyon. It was um, done back in 1999, and it's a wonderful documentary. And it will really take you through um, just how significant and important this site really is. Wow. And, I mean, obviously it's, that qualifies as a wonder with the sheer brilliance of the engineering that went into it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sickened that it doesn't show up on any of those other lists that I have seen or that we've talked about. Nothing in North America does. And I get it. There's not these really massive you know, buildings and structures, but sometimes that does not make a wonder. Sure. All right, I'm off my soapbox for the moment. It's your turn. <laughs> I have no way to segue from that. <laughs> uh, so if we're gonna, if we're working our way eastward, um, most of my stuff is in Europe or in, in Asia. So um, let's jump to the Acropolis, shall we? Let's do it. At Greece. So, I mean, why is the Acropolis so significant? Well, I mean, it's it's the Acropolis of Athens, number one. So it's it was a fortress, essentially, that they had built on a hill. And If I may quickly correct, it yeah. was a temple. Temple. It looks like a fortress, I should say, because it's on a hill. Um, it's a temple, yes. There's... Having staggered through its columns 
quite inebriated <laughs> and having a spiritual experience, I have to add, it is awe-inspiring, staggering. I highly recommend it. Yeah. You said you were quite inebriated? Yes. I really hope that the uh, the janitors had a good time cleaning up your spiritual experience. But you know, it was all organic. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so a couple quick facts about it. So it was it was built in the 5th century BC under the leadership of Pericles. And it probably, ref- I think it reflects the geometric knowledge and the brilliance of the engineering of what the Greeks were able to accomplish. More so, I mean, Greg, you know, because you've actually been there. Yes. But... The brilliance of it is that none of the lines are straight up close, but yet they're designed that when you see them from a distance, they look straight. They look to be... It's based on an optical illusion. Yeah. Uh, All of them are slightly at an angle. And it's just the fact that they had to take that into consideration with every part they were building is is genius. Um, The fact that it survived a, a massive explosion between the Venetians and the Turks was also an astonishing and little known fact. Yeah, absolutely. That that it still stands in spite of the phenomenal man-made destruction that was uh, subjected to it. It's it's amazing. Yeah, well, that's a very um, hostile region of the world if you look back in history far enough, right? It's pretty calm and peaceful <laughs> at the moment, but it hasn't always been that way. There's been a lot of invading armies that have walked through there, either on their way to conquer or on their way to conquer somewhere else. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about why this, this place exists, why the temple exists. Uh, it is built... It was built from the cult of uh, the Athena Polias, and so its temple was stood at the, on the northeast side of the hill. There's actually a few different monuments within the Acropolis that deserve to be mentioned. The one that's probably the most important is uh, the Parthenon, right? Named actually after the full name of, of Athena, Athena Parthenos. Parthenos is the Greek word for, for virgin. So uh, the Parthenon was a temple devoted to her. Eventually, later on, became a church when Christianity was established. So the thing that's interesting is on the north side of the Acropolis, the temples on that side are devoted to the Olympian gods. But on, on the southern part of the Acropolis uh, is dedicated specifically to different qualities of Athena. So one is Polias, the patron of the city, uh, Parthenos, Pallas, Promachos, goddess of war, Ergain, the goddess of manual labor, and then Nike, the god of victory. And so, shoes, of course. And of course, and of running shoes. And of, of Michael Jordan. <laughs> Indeed. It says here that after the end of the Peloponnesian War in 404 BC until the first century BC, there were no important buildings that were erected on the Acropolis. But yet, it mentions that in 27 BC, a small temple dedicated to Augustus, basically just to establish the Roman domination of the, of the region, was built to the east side of the Parthenon. Correct. It still stands. And what's fascinating is you can see exactly that they just made a miniature copy. Really? Of, yeah. And it, it's, um, well, let's face it, the, the Romans architecturally were geniuses at, let's say the Greeks were the architects and the Romans basically were the great contractors and laborers. Uh, I know this is probably going to anger a few purists out there who perhaps are of Italian descent. However, uh, the Greeks often were, were the, 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 the ice cutters, if you will, and uh, the Romans followed in the ships later. It's culturally proven many, many times, but still, it's it's I can take that and make it better. And often the Romans did do that. Yeah, their whole mindset was they weren't just going to conquer you militarily; they were going to conquer you culturally too. So they were assimilated the knowledge and applied it to their own. And did, yeah, and did. 
Well, the Palace of the Emperor and just across from it, of course, the, the Temple of Jupiter in Rome is essentially based on the same idea and in, in the location in which where they built the Acropolis, uh, being upon this really high up outcrop of, of mountain. And it's also worth mentioning that this whole area was inhabited well before that, uh, back to the fourth millennium BCE, where there was most likely a religious cult associated in this area uh, from from very early always on. Always has been. Always, always had a connotation. And what's interesting as well is there's the ancient uh, ring of the city called the Placa, which surrounds the whole Acropolis plateau. You can go anywhere within that, and no matter where you look, mm-hmm. be it to the right or to the left, <laughs> you see that up on that plateau. Yeah, that was done on purpose. Absolutely. It, yeah. It's by design. We're the powerful that's the it would be as if the vatican were put on top of a gigantic plateau yeah well, well think about what acropolis means uh if you look at the place at the of Greek. height well it's uh i think the literal translation would be edge city or city on the edge but yeah up height is what it's what Acro, it's implying right. akron polis right so that's uh sitting on the edge uh and that's that's really what it was designed to be no matter like you say where you ever and imposing at it. it's extremely imposing and and when that sun hits it in the afternoon it's it's staggering. It's just so vivid. It absorbs the the orange, the almost that burnt orange yeah. of the sun. It stands out. What I find really interesting is as it goes into Christianity and it becomes rededicated as a church, the name it technically is kind of the same devotion, right? We're talking about Athena because she was a virgin goddess. Yet the Parthenon part of the Acropolis became a church. It was devoted to the Virgin Mary. <laughs> Sure. So now, don't forget too. Athena is also the goddess of war. Yes, and and phenomenal cultural implications with that. When you walk the ground, literally, it's not ground. Most of it is marble, and directly across from the Acropolis is what is known as Paul's Rock, and you can stand where Paul preached to the Athenians, and it's almost equally as worn as the steps to the Acropolis, which yeah. speaks volumes of of just how much religious influence has just been trod on those those uh, stones it's right. just amazing i mean for those who don't rem- don't know i mean in ancient Christ- well, i wouldn't say ancient christianity but in early christianity athens is one of the five main patriarchies in the early church correct so it would make absolute sense that there was that much influence that was there so to, to make a long story short uh, when you go look at the acropolis today it's uh, a far cry from what it used to look like it's been damaged from various reasons natural occurrences wars <laughs> as we've as mainly man mostly. man has his Put his ugly mitts all over it. Yeah, and it, from pretty much the point in time it became Christian forward, it's been defaced for numerous and various sundry reasons. That being said, um, after the liberation of Greece, thankfully the Acropolis has come under the care of the Greek government. And um, and finally UNESCO. <laughs> right, exactly. And uh, UNESCO, for those who don't know, that's the United Nations, uh, what it classifies as, as a world culture, uh, a world heritage site. So it's protected... And it's preserved by that organization uh, because of its significance in cultural history. And uh, there, basically ever since 1975, there's been uh, an aim by the Greek government to keep a very large-scale conservation of that monument uh, in place. And what's, what's really sad is we were talking about how earlier a number of the artifacts that are uh, owned by the British, a lot of them unfortunately came from the, the Acropolis and from the, the Parthenon. And this is definitely one of those situations where now the Greek government has been trying to convince the British government to give them back, and they're not really having much success in that yeah. that field. Yeah, well, yeah. You, you think about the millions of people who come through a place like the British Museum, for example, every single year to see those very items, to see the catalogs, who the covers themselves have featured these items. Those museums are not going to give it up easy. Trust me, 
I worked in a museum for 10 years. I know what it's like to hold on to something that doesn't belong to you uh, because without it, your museum probably would not exist. And so I, I totally get the argument. And I agree that a lot of those important pieces should go back to their country of origin, bring that tourism back to that country, see it where it was originally. Yeah, as if Britain doesn't have enough artifacts of its own. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Is Follow it, the money. Yeah, it, it all yeah. comes down to taking the other pieces that are in their collection that are just as culturally important, if not as as well-known, and making them those well-known artifacts so that they can, yeah, you know what? Here, take it back. We don't need it any longer. We've got all this other cool stuff. But Agreed. that's not something that's going to happen right away. Well, I, I think now that we've talked about uh, Greece, and particularly the pillars in Greece, we wouldn't have those pillars if it wasn't for... Oh, oh, uh... Did... It's that damn spatial time vortex again? Oh, bonjour, mon ami! Bonjour! It is I! The... Who snuck in the jackass? Fine. I did not cross the Alps on a fine white palfrey. Fine. Ignore the painting. What I have come to talk to you about, mon frères, is audible.com. Well, sure, your highness. Go go right ahead, please. Thank you. You may simply call me nah. emperor. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Not, not general? Oh, mon dieu. Oui, c'est bon. Bon général. <laughs> By the way, I do appear taller than depicted before. Oui? Yeah, you're you're you look actually like more average height than uh, than short. I like you. <laughs> so, what are we talking about today? What uh, should I bring? Uh, well, we we were uh, talking about the the seven wonders, and uh, you know, I please. will the eighth just arrived. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and you know, usually we would uh we would talk about probably by this time we work in an, an ad, you know, for yeah, one for of our one sponsors. of our sponsors, yeah. You know, audible.com. I will not sponsor Josephine. That is over. It is done. Do not ask me. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. But we're, we're talking about audible.com. Oh, audible. Yes. The noise, the sound. Yes. Well, audible.com is a great website that we've we've gotten sponsored with us. And so they, you, know, you can go and you can listen to audiobooks. They can listen to uh, things like French. My speeches? Your speeches. You can uh, look up books on. Um, on military, on, uh, on French, exploits. on French tactical failures, and also um, on uh, Russian meteorological patterns. I had to bring that up. I have fired my meteorologist. I do not like snow. Thank you very much. Ah, uh, sorry. I think I I, uh, I hit a bone apart. Oh God! <laughs> there is a wagon leaving at twelve. Be under it. Well, thank you, uh, your Highness. Um, I think, as it turns out, the uh, the temporal. Time Vortex is uh, is re- reopening. It is once again calling my name. Yeah. Well, I'm off to Auschwitz once again. And if you see anyone that looks like Wellington, tell him he is English. And that is bad enough. Uh, well, that's right. Well, gosh, we've had tremendous world leaders in our... We've had, we've had a president, we've had a British prime minister, now... We have a dictator who threatened to throw me under a wagon. This is a first on Nerds yeah. on History. That was fantastic. Yeah. Right. Remember, the Emperor of the French, not the Emperor of France. That's true. Wanted to make a very clear distinction there. Right. Uh, and again, just as a reminder to our listeners, if you do go and click on that little link for audible.com and sign up for that 30-day free trial, Nerdonomy just might happen to get a little something out of it, which would support us so that we can keep that temporal vortex going and bring you more figures from history to threaten my life. So, very good. Well, there you go. Hey, Greg, thanks for, uh, you know... Stepping aside for a moment so Napoleon could uh, use your chair. We appreciate that. I bow to all emperors. It's just proper etiquette. So like I was saying before Napoleon came to give us our ad for Audible, 
the Greeks would not have had the, uh, well, I shouldn't say that. They, they probably would have figured it out on their own. They probably would have had the chops to go ahead and build the columns on their own. But they did take a considerable amount of inspiration from the ancient Egyptians, for which they had uh, some fantastic trade routes set up in a long partnership. And they had come into that country and seen these amazing marvels. And if we're going to talk about pillars, then we've got to talk about our next wonder, which is the Temple of Karnak at Luxor in Egypt. Which has a very which, humble. By the way, we went to, and uh, guys, say you were not that pleased with the uh, with the accuracy of the wrong Luxor, Brian. That was Luxor in Vegas. Oh, yeah. And I feel like a dumb shit. Yeah, you should. By the way, does anyone not realize that Johnny Carson is indeed dead? Can you just let it go? Yes, I can let it go. What is letting go? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Continue. No, no, no that's fine. Uh, I, I'm going to say, though, that the Karnak Temple, which is one of the largest temple complexes in the world, had a very, very modest beginning. And I'm going to show it to you. So I'm showing a picture to our fellow uh, hosts on the show right now. It looks like is, a glorified canopy. That's exactly what it is. This is a very small open-air temple. It was dedicated by Senuzret I, uh, one of the first leaders of, of Egypt's Middle Kingdom. And this is the humble beginnings of Karnak Temple. So you, you think about those huge pillars and, and other, uh, you know, obelisks and, you know, enormous courtyards and sphinxes and all of that that you see there. And this is where it got its start. This it tiny little chapel. It looks like the stone jailhouse of Virginia City. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised, to be honest, if that was an influence. Mark Twain did not sleep here. <laughs> But this is just a, a, a tiny little open-air chapel that was dedicated by this ruler who, at this time in Egypt, had helped bring the country back together. He wasn't the, the first pharaoh to, to do this. There was a pharaoh before him who was actually the unifier, amun uh, who who brought the whole country back from this period of... Uh, political instability that had happened where the country was being divided up and ruled by lots of different people. Now there was a centralized leadership again. Uh, only a lot of its leaders were actually coming from the southern portion of Egypt. And uh, it was near the the ancient site of Thebes, which was very small at the time. I mean, there was not a huge amount of people who were living in or around Luxor at that period in Egyptian history. There was maybe a settlement of 20 or 30,000 people. So there's there's... A lot of building that's going on in that period uh, from many different rulers. In fact, 30 different pharaohs would leave their mark on Karnak Temple, quite literally, by building a variety of different structures and expanding it to its eventual size. Let's, let's clarify they left their marks in stone. Exactly. They, they did. Stone and mud brick galore. And I'm going to show another picture to, uh, to my fellow hosts here. You can go online. If you just do a general Google search for Temple of Karnak Reconstruction, you can see what it eventually ended up being. Oh, wow. So it, from that teeny tiny little white chapel. It's like a freaking city. It, that's essentially what it was. It was a city. It was a city of the dead, if you will. Because by the New Kingdom, the political and religious power had now moved into Thebes definitively. And you had all these warrior pharaohs who were bringing in a huge amount of wealth into the country. And with that, you found every single one of them wanted to make their name. And the way they made their name was expanding and building this, this area. And it's actually technically three temples. It is a temple complex because it composes more than just one. There's the primary god who became the, the most important in that area, Amun, who was eventually associated with the sun god Ra. 
uh, algamating into Amun-Ra. And that's what the largest of the, the complex is. The, the central complex is, is the precinct of Amun. Then you have over um, to the north, you have the uh, complex of Mantu. And Mantu was the older regional god who had been very prominent uh, in the Middle Kingdom and periods before that, who was given a very modest, very small temple, uh, but just enough to appease that particular deity. And then you have the, the female consort to Amun, the goddess Mut, who was to the south there and had a pretty sizable temple of her own. But as you can see, most of the activity going on was, was there with the temple of Amun. And this was a place where you have an enormous number of priests who were performing rituals on a daily basis, who had to be sustained and live within the temple walls. And why, why do you think, then, that this should be or is classified as a wonder? Well, the, the sheer continuation of its building, the, the fact that they kept it going for so long, even beyond the New Kingdom and into the Ptolemaic period. One could make the same argument for the Winchester Mystery House. <laughs> mm, no. Uh, <laughs> they could only try. They could only try, absolutely. And I'm sure they will eventually try to get uh, UNESCO uh, um, protection. But uh, no. I will say that uh, this this whole area, though, just the, the fact that it continued to expand and grow and that even as other leaders kind of fell out of power uh, and their monuments were taken down, they were in a way preserved uh, quite by accident because um, Akhenaten, for example, one of the most controversial leaders in Egyptian history, uh, he had his own buildings and constructions that were done in the area, taking away from that centralized figure. After his reign, they tore those down and used them as filler for later pillars. As those pillars fell into disarray, they took out the filler to repair them and brought these temples back into existence. So it's, it's almost an unintentional museum in, in, in many ways. Uh, so it's just it's it's significant for that reason. And it That's has... ironic that to destroy, he used pre-existing and that in the recovery, it became, once again... Exactly. Prominent and, and known. Yeah. That's to, irony. To completely destroy something was a really extreme move, even if you completely disliked somebody to the to the core. Uh, to do that was almost sacrilegious to the ancient Egyptians. Anything built with stone was meant to last for eternity and was an aspect of the continuation of society. Yet there are, are systematic, pharaoh-driven acts of vandalism where faces and images are completely chiseled off. There are, you can see. but those are oftentimes in tombs and they're outside of public view. In a place like Karnak Temple where essentially everyone, particularly the priestly the staff, can see Absolutely. it. Yeah, exactly. So they would build just bigger monuments in front of other things. They would build retaining walls around them, walling monuments them up. Monuments bigger than yours. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And running all of this was the high priest of Amun, who eventually, because of the amount of wealth that was coming through into this one temple, would even take over as a ruler in his own right. He would become his own pharaoh. So it's a really significant uh, place and really important monument in Egyptian history for a lot of different reasons, but uh, it is incredible. And if you get to go there now, you only think that it's one little piece because you're not allowed to go to the larger you know, remains and ruins of the temple. Uh, one of the only places you're really allowed to go and visit is the Great Hypostyle Hall. And that's where it kind of brings in its architectural uh, wonder because, yes, you have these enormous pylons. You have the largest obelisks in the world located there as well. But you have this massive hall that's got, uh, it's nearly 50,000 square feet. It's got 134 columns uh, in 16 rows, and they are approximately 10 to 12 meters in height. So there wow. are these massive, huge stone columns with reliefs carved on them, started by Seti I, finished by the fair, uh, famous uh, Ramesses I. And just putting these together uh, was a pretty incredible feat, because what they did is they, they built the retaining wall first, and then they went ahead and filled, you know, put in the, the bases for each of these pillars, filled it up with sand. 
so they can then drag in uh, using you know pulleys and sleds the the segments that would build up 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 and become those columns and they move them into place once they have all 16 in place fill it up with sand up to that level again and keep on going until they had reached the desired height of between 10 and 12 meters wow a huge huge uh 70 ton uh stone roof was originally placed on it that has all since caved in and fallen in so it's open to the sky now but it was originally closed off very dark area had small windows uh, and it was designed to house or lead to the corridor that would house the actual statue of Amun, that sacred figure, uh, which when I showed you on the picture as well, you see all these little causeways that lead out into the river. Right. That statue during the Opet Festival will be put on its own special boat, sailed out, and then up and down the, the Nile River, up and down the country as a way of celebrating that god. Wow. Most people never got a chance to see the statue. Most priests didn't even get a chance to see the statue. So... Yeah, pretty yeah. significant area. You know, um, I think this might be a good place for us to to make a pause, if we will. We're going to make this a two-part episode, I think. And it's fitting that we're going to end on a necropolis, because we're going to start on a necropolis next week when we get to the other four parts of the, the seven wonders of the ancient-ish world. We'll, be talk- we'll lead on with the mausoleum of the King Dynasty, with the famous terracotta soldiers. Yeah, and then, of course, we'll finish it up with uh, the Great Stupa of Sanche and the Pyramid of the Sun, of course, and the whole uh, Teotihuacan complex there in Mexico, uh, and then finally uh, Angkor Wat. So be ready, listeners. We're going to give you that part two next week, because I, I think that if we tried to do all of them in one episode, it just wouldn't do it justice. And yeah. even as it is, trying to do all of these in two episodes still don't do each of them justice we're just giving you that uh, little tidbit to get you interested to get you out there and to study if not actually go absolutely and see some yeah. of these and things. of course as always don't take our word for it now we will be posting the show notes for the first part of this within a couple of days of the, the episode's release uh, so you can see the resources we used and hopefully let that be a uh, jumping ground for you guys to do your own research and i have to say listeners we because we have listeners from around the world uh, we know we have a very large following in the United States. If you happen to live in the New Mexico region, uh, if you're around there, I, I implore you, please we go get and it. check out Chaco Canyon. I'm, no, you don't get it. It's important. It's, 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 it will put a face on the sophistication and knowledge of the ancient Native Americans in America, and it will, be, it will blow your mind. Uh, if you live around any of these other monuments that we've mentioned, you know, if you are a listener in Egypt, because we have a few of you out there, I have several Egyptian friends who have never gone to any of these massive monuments that are in their country. I really do. I, I have friends who, you know, have been to the pyramids once, and they've lived in Cairo. Go! See these things. Go experience them for yourself. They're amazing. If you live in Greece, go to the Acropolis. Check it out. Be a tourist in your own country. It's totally okay to do that. Uh, and if your travels bring you to any of these locations, check out our picks, because they're important for a reason. Yeah. I would like to add uh, my thanks to these fine gentlemen, and I do mean that, uh, for the opportunity to come on and throw in my cent and a half. Uh, to all you listeners out there, I would encourage you to constantly question, seek, get the knowledge. The great Harry Truman once said, the only history I don't know is that I haven't read yet. So go for it. Be smart and always look for that next fact. Thank you, Greg, for being on the show. We really appreciate it, especially on such short notice to be here indeed yeah thanks very much yeah and uh, so you heard our ad in the middle of the episode we do also still have a donation button you can click on at the top of our page on nerdonomy.com to you know help us pay some of the bills we're uh 
trying to make this a real deal, right? So yeah, and if you're if you're tight for money, you can't give a donation. That's why we have the other means by which to help us out. So you click on any of our links for Amazon. Even if you don't buy what it is you're looking at on there, if you just buy anything else on Amazon, we will get a small portion of that. It ends up uh, getting sent to us to help support us here. So you know whatever you're gonna buy, go go click on that link first. Go buy that. Helps us out a little bit. If you like audiobooks, because it's a great way to receive knowledge. If you don't have time to read like me, because I've got kids screaming in every ear and pulling on my legs throw some earbuds in cuts out the screaming you can still be a great parent go around and take care of them but you can also listen to your amazing audiobooks at the same time and if you sign up for that 30-day free trial again we get a little bit of that too cool and uh you know until next time nerds stay nerdy and tune into us next week same nerd time same nerd channel nerdonomy.com bye-bye bye-bye take care Eric, I know that Emble isn't supposed to book any mm-hmm. more yeah. guests, but I, I kind of made a promise to one more. <sighs> yeah, you, you'll like him though. I promise. Uh, his name is is Heinz Klepfter, and he is uh, was in fact he is the grandson of Hitler's tailor. Great.